So one of the um, contemplations that I've been involved with since leaving the monastery three years ago, actually it's been going on for quite a lot longer than that, is the right relationship between form and emptiness and, and spontaneity and authentic kind of relationship with the present moment without any structure or context to form it or to shape it or to do all the rest of that. And I've mentioned to the group, I think last week or the week before, you know, in the monastery we have all kinds of rituals and things that we do. And we come into shrine rooms and we see Buddhas and we bow and there's Buddhas everywhere. And every time we sit, we bow and there's all kinds of chanting that we do. And the chanting is meant to be stuff that helps us stay connected to our intention and our aspiration and all the rest of that. But the problem is, is that any time you've got a form and you institutionalize the form and you say that the, this is what you're supposed to do, then it's really hard to stay connected to authenticity when you're doing it if you're supposed to be doing it. Because you are having to navigate the sense of shame if you don't do it. So the choice, the absolute choice of whether you want to or not is mitigated by the sense of shame of what are people going to think about me if I do or if I don't do. And for a whole variety of reasons, when I left England, I didn't want to have anything to do with bowing. I didn't want anything to do with chanting. I didn't want anything to do with forms like that. I just wanted to see what happened if I open up a wide open space and don't ask or demand any of that and see what happens to myself and to my and it's been a very rich exploration. I feel really grateful that I've been in a space like this. So this is a hermitage. There's nobody else that I'm living here with. There's nothing horrific to anybody about whether I do or I don't chant. You know, and so if I was in a monastery and categorically refused to chant and to bow and to do all of those things, it would be disturbing. You know, you've got a whole flow and then all of a sudden somebody's not doing it and what's the deal, you know? So I've had the space to explore and to feel in myself where this stuff is coming from and where the resistances are and where the values are. And there are good reasons for resistance, and there are good reasons for the value of doing it. Both are true. And so with anything, it isn't so much the absolute nature of bowing or form or structure, but how we're relating to it. And the kind of group think that forms around it. And so if a person in a group moves out of the kind of the, the, the narrow line about the way that they're going, how the rest of the group responds to them in terms of are they supported, are they ostracized, are they bullied, you know, what happens, right? So, all right, so I have this kind of like history of a lineage of everything that I've come through, which is unbelievably rich. And it comes from the forest tradition of Thailand, and it comes from forest meditation masters. And yet, from the basic essential practice, the Buddha didn't have liturgy and chanting and ceremony and all of this stuff. All of this stuff formed over centuries, partly because that's what happens after years, is, is that people try or they, they form ways of, of looking at things or reflecting on things and all the rest of that. 
Now, originally, the way it worked was is, is that the Buddha would give discourses, and the discourses were memorized, and they were passed on from one person to the next by chanting them. And so the chanting wasn't a liturgy. The chanting was repeating the words of the teacher. And then they became liturgies, where extracts of certain things were taken, and then it was codified into ways of of remembering. So, for example, you know, one of the chants that we do all of the time, only a couple of years ago, I learned the source of it, and it's absolutely inspiring. The story was is, is that the Buddha had two main disciples, Mahamogalana and Sariputta. And Sariputta was the one who was renowned for wisdom. And Sariputta had five brothers or sisters, or seven brothers or sisters, I can't remember, and all of them were completely in line. So you can imagine, you know, what kind of a family he came from, right? But his mom was not Buddhist, she was Hindu, and she thought all of her sons and daughters were write-offs because they were shavelings and schlumps, and they asked for alms, and they, you know, they weren't, they didn't graduate from Harvard, and, you know, for her, the idea of what success was, none of these were manifesting because it, her idea of what success in the world was was not enlightenment. It was worldly wealth, position, power, and all the rest of that. So when Sariputta was dying, he knew he was dying, and he was looking around and thought, well, you know, what do I need to do? And he looked at his mom and he thought, well, if everybody in the world, he was the one who might have a chance of being able to get through to her, you know what the situation was. So he asked the Buddha's permission if he could take leave of the community and go and spend some time with her. So she was like, yeah, right, you and your 500 schlumps, okay, I'll take care of them. <laughs> you know, the right-hand man of the Buddha I was like a big deal dude, you know, so he doesn't travel by himself, he's got a retinue. So she was wealthy, had a huge house, and so there are 500 people in the entourage that she was going to need to feed and take care of. So reluctantly she consented. So Sariputta is there, and he's dying. And so as he's dying, the various different celestial beings are coming to pay homage to them because they knew how realized he was and what an honor it was to have any contact with him at all. So she was like, all right, so the big, huge, bright lights are filling up the room. And she's like, so what's the deal? You know, what's going on? Who are all these people? So Sariputta was saying, you know, this is this one, and this is this one, and this is this one. And she's like, wow, you know, why are they coming and paying respect to you? <laughs> she said, and then Saiputta would say, well, you know, actually, I'm nobody compared to my teacher, you know. And then she was a Brahmin, and so Brahma Sahampati came himself. So the Lord of the Brahma realm came himself to pay respects to Saiputta. And mom said, all right, so who's that? And Sariputta says, well, that's Brahma Sahampati. And she said, oh, my goodness, you know, Brahma Sahampati is coming respects to pay respects to my son, my schleppy son. <laughs> and again, she said, you know, well, you know, actually, compared to my teacher, I have nothing, you know. So her mind opened up with tremendous faith. And so what Sariputta did at that point was just recount the blessings of the Buddha. And that recounting the blessings of the Buddha that Sariputta did just before he died for his mother was what we have chanted every single morning and evening for 20 years, and I never knew, okay? 
So what became a liturgy was taken out of a particular story context of a person opening up in faith because of something that made a lot of impact. So we just did the chanting. I never knew the story. When I knew the story, it was like, wow, this is actually very inspiring. So I wanted to go through one of the chants that I really enjoyed. It's the Dasadama Sutta, and the Dasadama Sutta is the reflections uh, for monastics. So as a monastic community, we have various different reflections that we used as a way of helping us keep focused on what our priorities were. And the Dasadama Sutta was one of them. So <clears throat> now, because this is oriented towards monastic, it's not considered beginning instructions. And it was focused on people who had made a life commitment or, I mean, none of us actually, we don't have life commitments, but our commitment was while we were there, we were completely, our whole life was focused on it. So that's probably a more accurate way of saying it. <clears throat> so it starts with, there are ten dhammas which should be reflected upon by those who have gone forth. And what are these ten? The first one is, I am no longer living according to worldly aims and values. So what does that mean? Well, in our world, you know, we like success. We don't like failure. We like happiness. We don't like unhappiness. We like praise. We don't like blame. The value is to have pleasant things and to get rid of unpleasant things. To have acquisitions of power and privilege and status and money and material possessions and to not have vulnerability and security or um, things which put our own sense of status at risk. Uh, a monastic or somebody who is focusing their mind on awakening is not as if they are saying that these things don't happen, but that this is not our aim. Our aim is to understand qualities of the heart that open to kindness and to compassion and to joy and to equanimity, to open to places where our minds are not shaken by these worldly winds. The next one. My very life is sustained through the gifts of others. So um, as an alms mendicant, I have no capacity to... Um, be able to take care of my own needs except if basic things are given or funds are given and kept by the trust to make that possible for me to have what I need. So my relationship with stuff by definition is going to be different than if I was operating under the, the normal assumption which is, is that when I earn money I can do what I want with it and I have the right have what I want okay so it not only changes my relationship with the stuff in my life but it changes my relationship with the people in my life because the people are what are keeping me alive not my own independent ability to maintain my basic needs which is a radical departure from what we normally do so, you know, we're talking about the story project, and next month I'm telling my story, and Sharon says, tell them what it means you're a nun. She said, they'll be shocked. <laughs> they'll be shocked! 
the next one is I should abandon, I should strive to abandon my former harm habits. So, you know, all of us have habits. Some of them are not so wholesome. And the habits that we have that are not so wholesome are things that actually keep us tied into um, cycles of suffering. And we can see that in the way that we relate to ideas about ourselves, in terms of the way we relate to ideas about the possessions that we have, in terms of the way we relate to where we secure our happiness, in terms of all kinds of things. And certainly all of us have work to do in not listening to these voices that say that I'm no good or that I am worthless or that I, you know, the kinds of demeaning, self-deprecating, self-punishing voices in our head. They are absolutely of no use whatsoever. We have got to have a kind of some ground where we say no. However that got there, it is absolutely not in any way helpful, skillful, or useful to believe them, follow them, or to act as if this is correct. You know, we've got to find ways to move against that. And for many of us, this is lifetime work. It's not, you know, there's no magic wand where we can go voop voop and it's disappeared. It's, you know, vigilance when this stuff arises and tenacity, tenacity to stay with it so that we're not believing this stuff. And coming from another wise and skillful response in our movement forward. So the next one is, does regret over my conduct arise in my mind? So as a monastic, you know, I've got 311 precepts, and, you know, there's all kinds of things about what I am supposed to do and not supposed to do, and, you know, living in a level of integrity that both has me in right relationship with myself, with the things that I own, with the lay community around me, with integrity, with regards to harmlessness, with regards to honesty, with regards to sexuality, with regards to speech, with regards to uh, renunciation and addiction. And, um, and so when we just consider, you know, do I, am I, you know, do I feel bad about stuff that I've done? Okay? Now, stuff that I've done is different than stuff that I feel. And that is something that we actually really need to understand. There's a difference. Because we can make ourselves crazy if we have thoughts that are somehow in a category that we think that they're not supposed to be there. So within the kind of way this all works is that there has got to be permission that we think and feel that the stuff is allowed to arise. Where we need to be clear is, is that what we do with stuff once it arises then it's going to have some effect. So if we follow things, if we believe things, if we act from thoughts or feelings, then there's going to be a ripple effect. And if we are not congruent that the actions that we have are with our values, then, you know, maybe it's okay to pause. Yeah. So then the next one is, could my spiritual companions find fault with my conduct? So not only do I need to be rigorous in terms of my self-evaluation, what are the people who I respect also thinking about what I'm doing? Because, you know, self-delusion is really very possible, even for people who are very committed on a path of awakening. And so we might not see any problem with what's going on, but the people around us might have some concern about it. So then it goes on to other reflections, which are not just in this 
separate set of reflections, but in another set as well. And then it goes on to say, all that is mind, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. It will become separated from me. So this reality, which is, is that, you know, everything in our life is, is tenuous, it's impermanent, even our own life. You know, we have, none of us know, you know, how long we're going to live for. None of us know if we go out and somebody slips on the ice and crashes into us and we're gone. You know, we don't know. And yet we live our life with the assumption as if we do know, and as if we have a long life, and as if we have all kinds of things that are part of, that goes with that package. And yet we don't know if that's the case. So when we take this as a contemplation to heart, you know, we don't know. We don't know how long we're going to be here. We don't know how long any of the people we love are going to be here. We don't know what's going to happen with the things that I have. I don't know if I'll be able to live here for as long as I need to. You know, I don't know. You know, the fire came, and I didn't know if the place was going to be burnt up. I don't know, you know. And it's not as if I have a huge amount of stuff, you know. But I've got a crystal, and I've got books. <laughs> I've got plants. <laughs> and it was like, and then all of the effort that went into putting this together and that, you know, to remodeling it and then to changing out the stuff that had fumes in it. It's like, and it wasn't even so much the stuff, it was the effort to make it what it was. And it was like, you know, I don't know. I don't know if when I come back it's going to be here. And that's the reality, is, is that we actually don't know. We don't know. But if we take that in our heart, as that is the reality, then it helps us live in right relationship with stuff. And so when we do those things, then we're not in the same kind of um, process as if we'd never considered that. If we don't, you know, if, we, if, we, if somehow that has never been part of our worldview is to consider that we never know how long anything is going to last. And that everything that we love, at some point or another, we're going to have to separate from everything. You know? So rather than this being kind of like sour grapes and a wet blanket and like, you know, bad news Buddhism, what this does is it helps focus our attention on what we do know and the kinds of qualities that we want to make sure we don't transgress so that we can live every moment with a kind of rightness, you know. I, you know, it's been interesting for me just watching my brother. So within a period of like hmm, three weeks, my dad died, one of his best friends died, and the son of one of his colleagues died. And it's like, you know, he got it. You don't know. You just don't know. And, you know, that really helped him kind of refocus his priorities about how do you want to live, you know. So I notice his Facebook posts are about philosophical quotes and about, you know, living each moment and bringing a heart to everything that you do. It's like it, it affected him. And that's exactly what this is meant to do, is to actually open us up to the potential of what life can be, 
rather than get kind of focused on the kind of infinite regression of unnecessary but urgent tasks that life is constantly throwing at us. Then it goes on to talk about karma, and it says, I'm the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, abide supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. So karma <clears throat> means intention. Karma vipaka means the result of intention. I am the owner of my karma means that I am the owner of the results of my intentions. Okay? I am the heir of my karma. It means who I am and who I become is a large part of the results of my intentions. So when we understand this, um, it also makes us absolutely responsible for what's going on. You know, the buck stops here. And it doesn't matter all of the other ingredients that have gone into creating what I'm dealing with. Ultimately, I've got to take responsibility for that. And I know, because, you know, for myself, you know, some of the shit-shoveling that I've had to do in terms of clearing out some of the dross of, you know, generational stuff and family stuff and all the rest of the stuff, it's like, you know, it's like, it's not easy work. You know, I come from Jewish ancestry, and to open up to some of the pain of what that involves is like, it's totally non-trivial stuff, you know. But however it got there, you know, it's like, I have to take responsibility for what I'm feeling, and to work with it in a way where I can use what I'm experiencing towards what I value, which is towards opening up, waking up, letting go of suffering, and being something, someone, a presence in the world that supports harmlessness, that supports kindness, that supports understanding for myself and my family, for the world, for the land, for everybody, you know, whether I know them or not, you know. So, you know, I didn't, I don't have any conscious memory of asking to be Jewish, you know, but I actually signed up. I don't remember signing up for that, but here I am, you know with pogroms and holocausts and, you know, wars and... Yes? Very interesting. <laughs> and yet, okay, so this is my inheritance. This is what I have to work with. And so, you know, I need to have the crowbars and the fulcrum that's big enough to lift the weight. And for me, that's been practice and resource yeah. then it goes on to say the days and nights are relentlessly passing how well am I spending my time so you know isn't this true you know it time marches on whether or not we're having fun you know and it's like you know, what are our priorities? And are we focused on them? And if we're not focused on them, how can we be focused on them? You know? So one of the things that I loved about Deepa Ma 
one of my teachers that had just a huge influence on me was is that she never ordained. And she was a grandma and she was a mom and you know, most of her life she spent at home taking care of her family. And she became a highly accomplished and very realized meditation master and people came to her for instruction. And she was adamant that people practice, no matter what their circumstances were. So she'd had Indian moms come that had five kids, you know, and, you know, three of them were under the age of two and a half. And, you know, one was nursing. And she'd say, you know, when you're nursing, meditate, you know. Let that be what you are focusing on, the sensations of nursing. So there was no sense that you had to not be where you were at but to totally be where you're at and let that be the place where you were actually practicing from, you know. And partly because of the fact that she was so highly accomplished and partly because of the fact that that was the context under which she did a lot of her own practice, her students also attained very deep levels of insight and realization in the context of being householders, you know. So I've been doing some work with um, entrepreneurs and you know one of the books that I just recently got from Gary who's one of the Dharma punks in LA he offered it to me was a book called um, Meditation on a New York Minute Super Calm for the Super Busy Yeah. so you know here's a person who was an investment banker you know he was a very successful person who spent 20 years or so meditating and decided that really what he wanted to do was to help other people understand how to do this. So rather than ask them to spend hours in silent meditation or to go on retreats, he just helped them focus that what they needed to do was to bring the, sh the vividness and resolution of a relaxed and focused attention into their crazy, super busy, insane lives. And to let that be the place where they could feel the effects of the calm and the relaxation. So rather than ask them to change their life and have different businesses and careers and move into different places and spend, you know, weeks, months, years in silent retreat, he said, no, right here, right now. You know, and this is what you need. And I really value that. Because there's lots of people who are not in a position where they can make changes, where they can have, you know, long stretches of time for a retreat. But what is important is the intention that actually one use one's life in order to be able to focus one's priorities. And that is true independent of the life and the kind of way that you're living, the way that it's structured. So the next one is, is do I delight in solitude or not? And this has to do with, um, you know, the kind of pleasure that comes from meditation and concentration. But I also think that in the context of the Buddha, there's something else that comes here, which is, is that they didn't have a sense of themselves as an individual, independent person in the way that we do in a postmodern world. You know, who they were was part of their village or their clan or their system or their family or their community. Okay. So an individual just had, had virtually no meaning. Yeah. And so in a context like that, where their sense of who they were was totally embedded in the cultural, the fabric, the sense of relatedness that they had, 
then having solitude was really a kind of rub um, to really get a sense of, well, if they're not in any of those systems, then who are they? Okay. Now, for us, we're coming from it from the completely the opposite end of the spectrum, which is for most of us, our sense of belonging has got ruptures and fractures and tears and holes, and we have a lot of work to do in order to actually develop a sense of relatedness and a, and a fabric of belonging and a sense of community where we feel is congruent and safe and actually attends to our uh, needs in a way that is supportive. Okay? So this is not to say that solitude and silence is, has no value, but it needs to be understood in context with the contemporary world that we're navigating and the kind of stuff that we've lived through in our families. And most of us have plenty in our families that we've lived through. <laughs> and so we need to kind of bring together the kind of intelligence of where we're at with the reflection of where this comes from and understand it in context. So then the next one is, okay, has my practice borne fruit with freedom or insight so that at the end of my life I need not feel ashamed when questioned by my spiritual companions? So, you know, as a monastic, you know, the point of this is not to become adept at the role of being a monastic, but to be able to use the role and the structure and the, and the container of being a monastic to understand what freedom is, what peace is, what joy is, what the end of suffering is. You know, I'm not a kind of performance act, you know. And so it's like, well, have I done that? You know? And so it's again to focus on, well, what's the deal? You know, what is this all about? What am I here for? And to really remember that, you know. Because like with anything, you with monastics, you can get confused. Like anybody, you know. Monastics have no monopoly on lack of confusion. You know. Just no way. It's a question of it's an inner journey that we have got to walk. So when you look at this in terms of all right, so this is a this is a sutta. This is chanted. This is a reflection. Is it useful? Is it not useful? You know, does it help us focus our attention on things that allow us to remember stuff that's helpful or not? And again, you know, my sense is, is that it has a lot more to do with the way we relate to it than the thing itself. Yeah. But to the extent that it is useful, to the extent that it helps us focus our priorities, that it helps focus where we're at and where we would like to be directed, then it's in this spirit that I offer these reflections this evening. And and suggest that we can now, you know, have a break and come back and talk about it.